You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. Welcome to this week's edition of the Getting Smart Podcast. We're your hosts, Jessica and Caroline. And today we get to listen into a conversation Tom recently had with David Conley. David is a professor at the College of Education at the University of Oregon. For more than 20 years, Conley has been a leading authority in American education policy. His seminal book, College Knowledge, outlined what students need to know and be able to do to succeed in college and careers. His famous Think, Know, Act, Go outcome framework was foundational for Summit Learning and My Ways from NGLC. Yes, and Conley's new book, The Promise and Practice of Next Generation Assessment, offers 10 principles for better assessment and a vision for how assessment could be integrated into learning and be a positive experience for learners, much different than I think we've all got to experience in the classroom. Let's listen in to Tom and David. David Conley, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thanks, Tom. Very pleased to be here. You're in in Oregon, where I I spent... Uh, the week, but you, it sounds like you grew up in, uh, in California. Is that right? I'm kind of a West Coast guy. Yeah. I, I grew up down in Santa Cruz and uh, why I ever left, I'm not quite sure, but, uh, ended up going to college at Berkeley and taught in the Berkeley schools for a number of years. So I worked in public alternative schools at the beginning and then went to Colorado and did all my grad work there and right. for both state education. Both department. of us, uh, both of us were accumulating degrees in the late 70s and early 80s in Colorado. Where were you? I was at School of Mines uh, for engineering and and, uh, DU for for business. You were working on bilingual education. What what led to that choice? Yeah, it was more multicultural and uh, education uh, that had a bilingual component to it. And I ended up, it was because the time that I uh, was in Berkeley, I helped found two alternative schools that were very multicultural in nature, and so when I when I went to Colorado, went to grad school, uh, I still had an interest in that area, and so that's where I, I pursued that my master's in multicultural ed. Why uh, why a PhD in uh, curriculum? Oh yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was working in schools a lot then. I, I was uh, doing a lot of professional development work. Those of us who've been ra- around for a while remember a woman called Madeline Hunter who developed some of the sure. first professional development for teachers. I used to teach some of that stuff. And uh, I got interested in the research side, actually, you know, the idea that there could be research-based kind of uh, solutions to improve student learning. And that, believe it or not, was kind of a novel idea in the early 80s. So that's what led me to pursue a, a PhD in that area. Well, David, we're talking about your uh, new book on next-generation assessment today, and it after I read your book, and then I, I, I uh, had assumed that you had uh, more of a background in, in psychometrics, and I, but it, when I saw that you had a PhD in curriculum, it made sense because you really do, in your new book, describe an integrated view of of assessment of, of teaching and learning in a in a really integrated sense. Is that yeah. must have something I mean, to do with your right your background in in both rooted in schools and and your training in curriculum. Yeah, I mean, I, I, in the acknowledgement section of the book, which is way in the back of it, um, I, I actually start off the acknowledgements by saying, look, I'm not necessarily an expert in assessment in the sense that I'm not professionally devoting myself exclusively to assessment as my career. I do a lot of different things, and the book is an attempt to kind of bridge the span that gap between uh, all the people who understand the, the specifics of the psychometric side of things in the educational measurement world 
and all those people who are involved in the teaching and learning and uh, and, and uh, instructional improvement side of the world. So it's, yeah, I have a background that kind of, that does a little of both of those things. And so that was, I think I was kind of uniquely prepared to write a book like this. Well, congrats on the new book. Uh, it's called The Promise and Practice of Next Generation Assessment uh, by Harvard Press. It was out recently. I think if I got the story right, the this book really started as a blog with, uh, for JFF. Is that right? Yeah, they wanted a little kind of a, a like a white paper type of a thing, and it was kind of a it was a it was a think piece. And in the process of writing it, it just occurred to me how much more needed to be done in this space. To really think about it a lot more deeply. And so, the book is. In the end, not very similar to the white paper, but uh, that's what happens when you're thinking of all of it. Let's uh, take a quick spin through the book. It, uh, the big, the, the the bulk of the book is organized around ten principles of next generation assessment, and I uh, I really like these as a, a set of organizing principles. So, um, would love to dive in uh, to most of these. The first one is really a striking statement that next generation assessment is focused on the learner's needs first and foremost. You know, when we think about assessment, it, it's often because we need to know something about the kids or we need to know something about the schools. Um, you, you conclude that principle by saying students are actors, not objects. Um, great opening principle. What, Tell us where that comes from and what it means to you. Yeah, uh, I mean, if you think about 20th century psychometrics or 20th century measurement principles, they assume things about the people being measured, and they basically objectify them. Uh, Todd Rose has a great book called The End of Average that makes the point that there's really no such thing as average, that uh, everyone deviates from average, but uh, but we make average because we can't deal with all the variation. Uh, and... It, it was kind of one of the basic principles of uh, measurement that started in the early 1900s was the opposite of that, which is uh, we've got to make everything conform to an average. And the degree to which it varies from the average is actually kind of deviant. So we build our whole system around, uh, around going to the average. And in the process of doing that, what you do is you end up kind of objectifying all students. Um, and you're not interested in their individuality, you're interested in kind of deviation from average as much to the degree to which that's a problem of some sort. Uh, because if they're too high, then you have to come up with some other kind of instruction for them. If they're too low, you have to come up with some other instruction for them. So tests were not ever really designed to help the student do much, even though we say, oh, well, we'll give the student the results and then they can, they can improve their performance. But it doesn't take into account the student may not want to improve their performance, or they may want to improve their performance in a different area, or they may not have done well on a test because they weren't particularly interested or motivated by what's on the test, or they may have done really well with a certain degree of luck, or they're a really good you, speaker, but not have the knowledge. You have uh, you introduced three rules to judge the learner-centered nature of assessments. Uh, the the assessment results do not stand alone. Uh, the test takers have opinions. And number three, sometimes test takers express their opinions about those assessments. But those were great. You know, this is like a really novel idea that um, why don't you ask students what they thought about the test that they took? And by that I meant, did it cover things that they've been taught? 
And you don't have to ask whether they like the test or not. And although I think that's a valid question also, but did it actually, were they actually taught what they're being tested? And everybody understands that opportunity to learn is super important, but no one yeah. has any measure of it. So we're getting really, I think, uh, you know, invalid advice for the, or invalid data for the most part when we don't know the degree to which it reflects what students actually know versus um, those students who haven't been taught the material at all. Number two is that uh, next generation assessments view uh, development uh, from a novice to expert continuum. Can you describe that for us? Yeah, the novice expert continuum. Right now, we kind of judge everyone on the amount of content knowledge that they've learned, and yet almost everybody agrees success in the future is not going to be based on the content knowledge you have solely at all. It's going to be based on your expertise. And what happens as you become more expert? You get better at interpreting. You get better at kind of breaking the rules of the discipline that's always following them. You get better at using information in novel ways. So what we ought to be doing, rather than just marching students through information acquisition, when they remain a novice, whether they're in the sixth grade or the twelfth grade, they're still a novice in the way that they're processing math or English. Even though the math or English might have gotten more complex, the way they process it is as a novice. We want to be moving them towards processing that information more like an expert. And you can process information at almost every level with an, with an element of expertise. So I'm saying assessment should judge not just content acquisition, but it should judge your expertise in integrating that information, applying that information, and using it in non-routine ways. That sounds um, like it links closely to number three, um, which suggests that learners understand the structure of knowledge, not, not just the facts. How might an assessment interrogate the knowledge of a, uh, the, the structure of knowledge? Well, first of all, I think teachers have to understand the structure of knowledge, uh, of what they're teaching. And it's, it's, it seems so self-evident, like, well, every teacher understands the structure of English or, or the structure of, of science. But most teaching is based on this kind of um, deconstructionist view where you take each piece, and uh, it's a reductionist view, where you take each piece of information presented kind of individually uh, and learn it individually. And then somehow you know, the student is expected to accumulate all that up into an understanding with deep insight of the structure of that secretary. Well, the other way to do it, and Grant Wiggins talked about this a lot, um, is you look at the, you, you, you understand the big ideas, the big concepts of the discipline, use that as a way to understand and comprehend and apply the specific knowledge. So it's going at it the kind of the opposite way in a sense. Um, very, it's very rare for teachers really to talk about some of these, uh, the, the conceptual nature of what they're teaching. It's almost always the mechanical side of, uh, of the learning. The yeah, for, uh, I think, unfortunately, we, in most disciplines, we introduce the structure in grad school uh, rather than uh, in maybe in high school, right? Yeah. One of the things I appreciate about uh, the International Baccalaureate and their effort to try to introduce things like theory of knowledge early on. Yeah, uh, but each discipline has a structure. And we just don't teach that. Yeah, I have three, three students who went through international, three, three children, my three daughters all went through international baccalaureate programs at, uh, at high school. And what they did is they, they did get a sense 
of the concepts that sort of, you know, what is knowledge, you know, what is truth? Uh, there's some of these concepts that are pretty important to understand if you're trying to understand science, for example. Uh, you know, and, and they had a chance to, to grapple with that while they were still in high school. And number four, you talk about uh, the fact that good assessments would promote ownership of learning uh, and help develop self-knowledge. I, I thought that was a beautiful description of something to build rather than than tear down a sense of agency. Yeah, and, and that word agency, it does get used a lot now, and I think it's it's one way of thinking about it. To me, um, I, I just use I use the term uh, ownership of learning as, right. as more of a it's just a little more descriptive is all to get at the idea that the student is, has made a choice to invest in what they're learning and who they're being and becoming because increasingly the 21st century education has to be about who you're going to be and become not just about what you know and can do and the two have become pretty intertwined and you know. We, we don't really develop student self-knowledge. Uh, we talk a lot about finding your passion, which is, boy, that's a hit or miss proposition if there ever was one, uh, instead of kind of learning about yourself and who you are. And academic learning can be a means to, to figure out who you are, but there's so many other types of learning situations that can augment and supplement academic learning. And, we're just now starting to integrate, you know, internships. We're just now starting to integrate more project-based types of learning, more inquiry-based type of learning in a serious way in, in a lot of schools. We're starting to allow students to have some greater degree of choice and understanding that the route they choose within, within reason, with, with some guardrails, the route they choose is going to be the one that reflects something about who they are. And what we're missing a lot of times is the ability to let the students reflect on what they've learned and reflect on, on what they could do and couldn't do and what they wanted to do and didn't want to do and how they messed themselves up or how they you know, made themselves more effective as learners. The first five of your principles really are student-centered, and then you, you pivot in the second half of your list uh, to school-centered principles. Both five and six are really about um, making – um, information really useful. Five is about making it useful to students. Six is about making information actionable for uh, for teachers in schools. Maybe you can describe how good assessments would create actionable information for students and then teachers. Yeah, I think the first principle is right now all the information we have is atomized. It's all separated out. We don't integrate information in any meaningful way to develop what I call a profile of a student, uh, where we're collecting information to, that, that's cumulative. So we're cross-referencing you know, what you know, who you are, and how you learn, which is actually a subsequent chapter that talks about information in those three areas. And we focus almost entirely on what students know or don't know. We, we know very little about how they learn, um, and we know even less of kind of about who they are. I mean, individual teachers may learn about individual students in some ways. But schools aren't places that integrate that, those three types of information at all. And even the idea of uh, collecting more information about students, it, it, I mean, some people talk about social-emotional learning or something. I, I mean, it, it's, I kind of worry about the, some of this nomenclature, but what we really need to be doing is letting students put together all the aspects of their learning to, 
be cumulative. And to say, you know, I don't manage my time really well, and that's what affected my ability to do my homework, and that's what affected my math score. And, no, I wasn't really interested in quadratics until I figured out that they could really do a lot to help predict, uh, you know, future events and future economic kind of and, and other, predict many types of future situations that I'm kind of interested in. And so now I made a connection with that, and I've got some reason to know that. So we're we're not there's no way to capture most of that information, and yet we live in a world where, you know, I'll tell you the retailers are capturing capturing every bit of information about us. Right. I mean, we, we all worry about we all worry about going online now because people are going to find out who, too much about us. So I mean, I'm not talking about that kind of invasion of privacy stuff. I'm talking about a voluntary, uh, thoughtful, selective accumulation of insight into you know, who we who our young people are as people, and you know what they're doing and where they're going. So we we still have a big interoperability problem. I, I guess we've made a lot of progress in the last ten years in that. The average fifth grader probably gets five or six different kinds of math feedback every week, but as you suggested, it's still really hard to compile all that into into a profile. So this is a technical problem we need to solve in the in the near future to make progress on this number five about making making assessment information more useful for learners, right? You're right. You're absolutely right. The the kinds of ways that schools aggregate information now kind of fall into two categories. There's kind of the home homebrew type where somebody gets out an Excel spreadsheet and starts trying to interpret yeah. say, test scores or something. And then there's these kind of learning management systems that are really one dimensional in nature. They're just they're capturing you know what what basic skills students can do and that sort of thing. Um, over and then sitting over somewhere else, you've got a teacher's grade book. Um, and then maybe over there when the student right. goes out and practices for the, you know, the sports team, the, the sports coach is getting a, a tremendous amount of insight into the student's leadership abilities and teamwork and so forth. That gets left out on the field there. Um, you know, maybe the, the principal gets some insight into or the counselor gets some insight into this, the challenges the student has overcome in their life to, to do, uh, you know, even, you know, even though they're still struggling, they're, they're doing far better than one might expect. That's less than the counselor's office. So, uh, you know, occasionally, you know, we have, uh, for special ed students, we might have a uh, an IEP meeting, but that becomes its own form of ritual. Um, and once again, the student doesn't really have a lot of input and control there and as well. So we're, we, we don't have the technology and we don't have the culture that, and we don't really honestly have the desire yet to empower students to be active in, in constructing these types of profiles and then students being the ones who talk to Adults. I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if, if students really learn to uh, be good help seekers and learn to ask for help as opposed to be always told they need help? I mean, the best performers, of course, go get all the help all the time. But that's you know, we need everyone to be resource seekers and resource users because that's the world they're going to enter. But once they leave school, they're going to have to be lifelong learners. Learn how to access resources. Yeah, it's a terrific point, um, D- David. You really did the pioneering work on on early graduate profiles on what kids need to know to be successful in post-secondary and careers. And you, I think you pioneered the term uh, wayfinding to describe these navigational skills. And and this um, becoming good help seekers seems like an important subset of that. I've watched a lot of young people leave college and uh, go into business on their own. 
all through skills they acquire outside of school. Um, for so many people, it's not what they're learning in school, it's what they're learning outside of school that matters in their lives. And I think it's a little bit of a call for educators to say, you know, it's a wake-up call to say, uh, you know, what students learn in school should be as important or more important than what they learn outside of school. And yeah. if students are developing all of these learning skills that allow them to acquire information outside of school, why isn't any of that being incorporated into the way they learn in school? So we're just right. this, this gap developing. I'm glad you mentioned coaches there. When I, uh, with educators, I often ask them to recall the most powerful learning experiences in their lives. And, and very often they mention extracurricular activities, uh, a performance or a, a game or a job. And uh, we're not yet very good at, at capturing uh, all the important learning that happens uh, outside of school. I mean, I, I was in drama in high school. That wasn't very good, but it was a pretty powerful experience for me. I mean, I, right. I mean to get up on a stage in front of my peers and you know, memorize lines and you know, try to, be, you know, assume a character. And I, I mean, I, I probably learned more about myself doing that and developed more more skills, by the way, than I, I did in, in most any other situation. So I think it's absolutely a wide and certainly music uh, programs, students will tell you they develop discipline, um, they get a sense of camaraderie, they get a sense of being part of the whole. They, it guides them in their lives very often in terms of what they want to be and become, and it gives them skills they can keep learning. So, but we're not capturing, we're not putting that together in a way that helps students see everything they're learning. They don't always see everything they're getting out of the experiences they're getting today. Hey listeners, real quick, I know we covered this last week, but I just wanted to remind you that we're hosting a book party for Tom's new book, Better Together, How to Leverage School Networks for Smarter, Personalized, and Project-Based Learning at a NACOL next month in Nashville. We'd love to have you join us. Uh, send us an email to editor at gettingsmart.com, mention the book party, and we'll send you a link to register. And as they say, we'll see y'all in Nashville. Jess, I can't wait for all the good food at that party. And we're super excited about all the organizations that have partnered with us to bring together that event. Yes, I am on the hunt for the perfect pair of cowboy boots. <laughs> all right, let's get back to it. Number six, you talk about actionable information for, for teachers in schools. Do you, do you have a sense of what that would look like? Or are there early emerging examples? Well, you know, I mean, the book has a couple um, Summit Learning, and I, I know you're familiar with a lot of these programs, and Summit gets, is an example. It's probably more mature of an example than a lot of places. And one of the reasons why is they happen to be located on the peninsula and very close to Facebook, and uh, the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation has taken an interest in them, so they've gotten a lot of help. So I'm not trying to say everybody's going to be able to pull off what they did. But, you know, they're, they're developing kind of these multi-layered systems of information about students that not only tells them, tells them a lot about what students know and can do, and with more of an emphasis on what people kind of loosely call competency-based learning, uh, but they're also able to combine that with uh, a lot more planning by students, goal setting, individual goal setting, um, and, and career planning. By career, I don't mean job. I want to be really clear here you know, that, that job training or job preparation is not the same it's career planning, and we've really uh, corrupted the word career here in service of a way lower 
expectation, which is just that somebody got a job coming out of high school. So goal setting is like absolutely foundational. We have tons of research in psychology and elsewhere to suggest people who can set goals and then shift their behavior toward those goals are much more effective than people who can't. People who can uh, have a vision of, you know, have a sense of, of the gap between what is and what ought to be. Uh, people who can have aspirations can, can defer gratification and can endure um, hardship and, and can persist and persevere to a much greater degree than people who can't. And yet, where, what role does goal setting play in schools? Well, you know, I've seen some and some of and other programs that do have more of a built-in emphasis on goal setting as a key con- component of the program. And the students have to take ownership of those goals. So, and that's one of the ways I think that you do it. You don't always need a really elaborate data system. If you can start with, with taking a look at the match between the students' goals and uh, what they're doing in school. Uh, David, I want to move to number seven, and you, you and I are probably two of the only people excited about cumulative validity. <laughs> but uh, you, you, you said next generation assessments will have high cumulative validity. Why are you excited about that? Well, I, I mean, since the, once again, since the early 1900s, we focused on um, reliability, on tests that could test the same thing over and over again. And... Um, and measure the same thing in a reliable fashion, where you got the, basically get the same result over multiple administrations of a test with multiple groups of people. And I'm not trying to diminish the importance of reliability, but you can look around the world and find an awful lot of countries that emphasize validity uh, to a much greater degree. They want to they want to measure what's important. They want to measure what's meaningful. Um, they want to measure what makes a difference. And so you'll see you'll see examination systems in other countries that do involve students uh, having an oral exam, oral examination. You'll see them having to create a project and uh, to take it to fruition. They'll look at, I mean, Queensland, Australia is kind of one of my favorites just because I've spent some time there. But you end up taking, making choices of the courses you take, and but you have to produce outcomes in all those courses that are pretty complex. And those are viewed then cumulatively uh, kind of as a whole and to see what you've done and how well you've done it. Teachers judge it, but it's also then put on a scale that can be used to apply and go to university. So it's very valid, and it's it's reasonably reliable. I mean, it, if you're measuring something that's really important, you have a little more room, I think, uh, not to have to have the same kind of reliability precision that you do when you're measuring something that's not very important. Why I'm excited about this topic uh, currently is that as, as we begin to build these Comprehensive learner profiles that you've described, we have the chance to view, uh, a student has a chance to view their progression and so do the adults that care about them uh, over time, uh, but with hundreds or thousands of, uh, of data points, right? If, if we want to think about a student's growth in writing and if we can uh, look back at the learner profile and, and look at 500 writing data points over a 48-month period and have, you know, really good feedback systems that give us consistent views of those 500 writing data points, then then you really have a cumulative and valid view of a student's uh, writing progression. Writing's an interesting one because we've got so many different genres of, of writing, so many different ways that someone can write. You can write kind of descriptive, you can write expository, you can write narrative, um, you can write analytic. There's different ways the, to write that are not 
strictly speaking, complementary. I mean, the skills are developed. I'm probably not a very good uh, uh, writer of of pure fiction. I mean, of kind of that uh, that that genre. I've never really done it. I don't, I'm not well trained in it. But it's another area where, if we let students kind of have a little bit of free reign, to where they can fulfill a writing requirement in different ways. Uh, it would be as if you let someone fulfill a physical education requirement in different ways. If you said, okay, uh, you're a long-distance runner. We're not going to make you do weightlifting. We're going to let you do long-distance running. or We're not going to make you swim. or you know, uh, We're not going to make you play in a team sport if that's not what you want to do. But you're going to still fulfill a physical education requirement. It's kind of like if we took that philosophy a little bit more within the academic space and said, well, we want you to be able to write. We know you can't write. Yeah, well, you know you're not going to do every genre perfectly well, but... We'd like to be good at a couple of them. No, we need a lot of these comments to know about that. Uh, this leads into uh, number eight, which says next generation assessments provide insight into the integration of knowledge and uh, knowledge in context. Uh, the fact that yeah. application and transfer aren't always easy. Uh, your comment right. about writing made me think of uh, a, a Burke Jacksburg blog that we ran a few months ago where he pointed out that expertise is very context and domain dependent. He says that good writing in history is not the same as good writing in science. All right, once you That's once you progress past the basics, that things become more and more context specific. Yeah, should our writing. assessments should our assessments should acknowledge that. Is that the point of number eight? Yeah, I think it's really hard to think about this at a state level, to think of a state assessment where you might be able, where one student might um, observe a chemical reaction and describe it, whereas another student might analyze a historical document uh, and, its, and, and, and its kind of its importance. Um, and to have those be comparable. You know, from a measurement point of view, they're not comparable. Uh, they're distinctly different. But, you know, if, back to our validity argument, it, it depends what we're trying to measure. And if we want students to be good at writing something, one thing at least, we would have room for them to do that. But if we're going to take a kind of a, an adaptation of the 17th century uh, upper uh, class education, uh, you know, the age of enlightenment where uh, the Renaissance man was educated to do everything, and it was man at that time, um, then, you know, we're going to be, we're not going to be equipping students for a complex world in which they're going to have to be better at some things than others. Now, we certainly can have exposure to all types of writing, but do we need to test it all? Do, do we do they ever need to be equally good at every type? And is one test of, uh, you know, a, a set of English skills? I, I, just, I just got off a call with the Smart Balance Technical Advisory Committee, which I'm a member, you know, talking about writing prompts, by the way, people writing prompts. Um, but, you know, I think the test does a wonderful job uh, of what it does. It's not a criticism of the test. It's more a question of what do we want to know about students' writing? And what do we want to validate as uh, being important for students to be able to do? And to some degree, it's, there's a link between what's important and you know, what they're interested in doing and where they have some aptitude and where they're willing to put off some effort. Number nine talks about harmonizing um, instructional improvement and, and, and accountability. How do you see, give us a picture of what integrated learning and assessment looks like. Yeah, well, I, I touched on some of this a little bit, I think, with the idea that we're we're trying to get a better match between what 
what educators and students think is important and, and what we want to assess because we pretty clearly have a mismatch right now, at least to some degree, where the past few years we certainly had a lot of people feeling like we were over-measuring some things that uh, weren't necessarily linked to what uh, people wanted to be teaching and what students wanted to be learning. So I think getting that aligned better is part of it. I think if we're, we know that teacher grades in high school are a better predictor of post-secondary success than our, our tests like the SAT or ACT. But we also know that teacher grading in high school is um, kind of completely unregulated and unstructured. And it's an area where we could, we could work to improve it. We could work to improve the quality of the judgments teachers make about students. Now, that's a lot harder than creating one test. But in the end, the payoff's a lot greater. If teachers can give students better feedback and give students better tasks to do, it seems like we can rely on that more for accountability purposes. There's ways to, I mean, many countries have systems where they have a standardized prompt that goes out, and then every teacher teaches something around that prompt, uh, and then that becomes your test for that year. So it, it, it's not impossible to have more of this kind of uh, a link between what teachers are doing and what we're measuring for the assessment our system and accountability purposes. I'm, I'm vastly oversimplifying this. I mean, it's, this is a really complicated, really complicated topic. So. Right. Well, and speaking of complicated, how, how do good assessments take equity into account? Yeah, that's another. Num number 10, right? This is a yeah, that's a, yeah, this is really, I think the very first thing is getting a better match, uh, getting a better sense of opportunity to learn and stopping uh, judging students on things that they didn't really get to learn. And we, I mentioned it earlier, but from an equity perspective, um, we have a lot of students who, you know, the only, the only place they learn is school. We have other, the only place they learn school stuff is school. We have other kids who their whole life consists of learning school stuff, whether it's at home, whether it's during their summer vacations, whether it's during, you know, family get-togethers, whatever it is. So we've got these structural differences in what we're value, valuing as knowledge and the opportunity for people to get that knowledge. Uh, and then we have a, just a quality problem where some classrooms just stay on the surface, don't go deep, don't, don't even address all the material that we're testing. So th that's a huge equity problem from my point of view. Um, I think with the grading, um, there's a couple ways we can make grading more equitable. Uh, one idea is not only to grade content knowledge, but to grade some of those what people often call non-cognitive factors. Uh, I like to call them success skills, things like your effort, things like um, your focus, your time management, your commitment to study. You may not have gotten the greatest score uh, in, on the test, but you, you were committed to doing the best you could do, and you tried as hard as you could try. And it seems like that, validating that and, and uh, is worth doing. And, you know, when, when we focus on closing an achievement gap as being nothing more than getting a higher test score, we often discourage students who are really working as hard as they can work and are showing improvement in a whole series of learning skills that may not have as yet shown up in their test performance, but we have no way to validate them and reinforce them for doing that. So we're, we're, we're defeating students when we have too few measures of success. We can add more measures of success. It doesn't mean you don't take the test. It doesn't mean you don't still try to close the achievement gap. 
or the test score gap is probably a better way to put it. Um, but it means that you find other ways to build skills, and including those learning skills that are so important for the 21st century. But there's a lot more to the equity part of it. Um, I think that yeah. exposing students, all students, to really high-quality curriculum it is another piece because right now with the assessment part, is uh, there's a state component to the assessment part. States will dictate the assessments, and the federal government will dictate things about the assessments. But there's no, absolutely no con control or influence on curriculum. And I don't know if we need the government dictating curriculum, but we certainly need a, a more of a level playing field for students to have challenging learning opportunities. Right. And, and Cl Cliff Edelman helped show us that a long time ago. Shut up and study after study. Uh, the quality of the, the courses that students get to take does matter. David, maybe you could walk us through um, a good week in a dream middle school that was using next generation assessments. What what would it look like and um, and feel like to go to school there? A week in a good school would probably start off on the first morning of on Monday morning by thinking a lot about what you did the last week. And you wouldn't launch, you wouldn't just show up and go right into class and start doing something. You'd have a reflection opportunity. And part of that would be reflecting on your goals and what you've done to achieve them. And as need be, you'd, you'd adjust your goals. And you'd have short-term goals and medium-term goals and longer-term goals. And hopefully there'd be a caring adult or uh, certainly caring peers who would talk to you and you'd, you'd share notes and you'd be reinforcing and supporting each other. You'd have a culture that said, I don't succeed or fail alone. I succeed and fail as a part of my group. And um, from that, you you might have uh, a uh, selection, a jukebox of learning activities where you're able to put together more of a program for a week. You're able to make some choices. There may be some things that are consistent that you have, have to do, you have to pay attention to. Um, but there may be two or three ways to address those. You may have a large project ongoing that you really want to spend a great deal of time on one day. And uh, you know you need to do some work over the next couple of days in that. So you're, you're, you're planning out your schedule and your time, and you're managing your time. And you have to work with a team on something, and so you need to communicate with your team members and figure out when you're going to work. Um, you need to seek help. You know that you're, you're not understanding something you've been taught last week, and you need to make a plan to uh, remedy that before you get too far behind. It also, the structure doesn't let you just do whatever you want. The structure doesn't let you... I do nothing. Structure doesn't ignore the fact that you're, that you're struggling. There's, there are checks and balances to, to watch what you're doing. And throughout the week, you're also contributing information to that, that profile that we talked about. And that profile becomes more and more kind of dynamic, and eventually it's not a profile anymore. It's a kaleidoscope. And it actually kind of changes as you change, and the pattern of information about you changes. And so fair, you know, occasionally you're, you're, you're really reassessing, well, who am I? Where am I going? What am I doing? Um, asking those questions. And you're preparing for life transitions. You're, you're, you, you may spend part of your week outside of school in, in a work environment or in an observational environment where you're seeing what's going on. You, you may spend uh, part of your time engaging in a social science experiment to kind of see uh, observing people and, and interviewing them. You may be just trying out different things as opposed to mas trying to master everything at kind of a rudimentary level. So come to the end of that week, uh, 
and you've got a lot, you know, spinning in your head, you know, and you, you may also have taken a look at a Road Trip Nation video uh, describing uh, a different, some occupation that, uh, out there that you're now starting to think about further. And so you, that's your week, and then you're getting ready for your next week where you, you're going to think about all this some more and kind of adjust what you're doing accordingly. And in that work setting, maybe you got some feedback from a, a workplace mentor that might drop into your profile? Absolutely. You know, now you're... Now you're starting to get some more feedback that, that you view as really authentic and as really genuine and um, as consequential. I mean, they could be saying to you, uh, hey, you know, geez, you really you can't show up like that at, you know, 10 minutes late. It's just not okay. And you've got to take a little more initiative. You can't just sit at your desk and wait for us to tell you what to do. And, no, we don't have snacks here, and we're sorry about that, but it's the way it goes. <laughs> you know, and and you realize, wow, you know, if I don't get better math skills, I'm not going to be able to handle some of these tasks I'll be asked to do, and I need to remedy that situation. Or I can't, if I don't understand more about chemistry, I'll never be able to aspire to the kind of career that I see around me that I want, I'd like to pursue. So now you start making some connections between what's going on out there and what you have an opportunity to do in school. That sounds like a good week. Um, let's, <laughs> let's keep working do it. towards more <laughs> having having that kind of week. Um, I'd, I'd recommend everybody get a copy of The Promise and Practice of Next Generation Assessment, David Connolly's new book. Uh, David, this is a great contribution. Um, I, I also want to plug, uh, going all the way back to college knowledge, at the outset I acknowledged uh, your pioneering work. You, you mentioned Summit. Um, Summit, like uh, Next Generation Learning Challenges, Really base their outcome framework on your your seminal uh, research. So a lot of us appreciate uh, the work that you've done, and and we're excited about uh, your your new book on assessment. So thanks Excellent. for being Thank on you. the Getting Smart podcast. We appreciate it's really it. my pleasure. Yeah, I appreciate it. I appreciate your work too. Uh, your work's influenced mine equally well. So thank you so much. A big thanks to Dr. Conley for joining us on the podcast today. We loved his vision for a week in school that incorporates goal setting, varied learning experiences, and valuable feedback. He mentioned in the podcast Todd Rose, the author of The End of Average and Dark Horse. You can check out our review of both of those books on gettingsmart.com, and they're also linked in the show notes. And for more informative assessment, check out the How I Know series of blogs and podcasts about the great work being done in Austin, Dallas, and Tulsa. We'll have that listed in the show notes as well. Do you have an idea for the show? Email editor at gettingsmart.com and send us your suggestions. Oh, and one last thing, make sure you rate and review the podcast so more of your friends can find us. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Caroline. And Jessica. Signing off.